Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's Monday, August 16th. Welcome to a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, We're going to start today with uh, the uh, extraordinary international story of the collapse of the government Afghanistan at the hands of the Taliban, which in a matter of days, short weeks, has swept across the country in the aftermath of President Biden's uh, decision to pull out uh, U.S. troops from the country. They've taken control. And although it is an international story, it's already playing its part in how Georgia politics are lining up for the 2022 election cycle. And we'll talk about all that and more with our panel today. I'd I'd like to start, though, by reading very briefly uh, to set the stage uh, from the opinion piece, the editorial The New York Times uh, ran this morning. The rapid reconquest of the capital, Kabul, by the Taliban after two decades of a staggeringly expensive, bloody effort to establish a secular government with functioning security forces in Afghanistan is above all unutterably tragic. Tragic because the American dream of being the, quote, indispensable nation in shaping a world where the values of civil rights, women's empowerment, and religious tolerance rule proved to be just that a dream. It is all the more tragic because of the certainty that many of the Afghans who worked with the American forces and bought into the dream, and especially the girls and women who had embraced a measure of equality, have been left to the mercy of a ruthless enemy. The Biden administration, the Times goes on to uh, say in their opinion piece, was right to bring the war to a close, yet there was no need for it to end in such chaos with so little forethought for all those who sacrificed so much in the hopes of a better Afghanistan. So that sort of starts the ball rolling for our conversation uh, with our terrific panel today. It's Monday, Jim Galloway, former political opinion writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, is uh, with us. Good morning, Jim. Good morning, Bill. It was kind of like Saigon all over again, was it not? Yeah, there are some people who would say just that, and we can talk about that comparison as we uh, move forward on the show today. Um, Eric Tannenblatt is back with us. He, of course, has worked with Republican candidates on uh, the presidential ticket all the way down to uh, local and state races, and he is now the global head of government affairs. I know I never get that title uh, f- a formally right, Eric, but it's it's close enough. At Denton's, the world's largest law firm. How you doing, Eric? I'm doing well, Bill, on this sobering day. Yeah, very sobering. Uh, professor Andre Gillespie is with us. She, of course, professor of political science and director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University is here. Andre, thank you for being here on, a, on what is it? I, I think it's safe to say a historic, if not what will become an infamous day in, in American history. Sadly, I think many of us will remember this. Thanks for having me. Buddy Darden is back with us. Buddy, of course, Democratic congressman from the 7th District, back when it was uh, went from uh, almost the outskirts of Atlanta, city of Atlanta all the way up 
to the Tennessee line. Uh, we're glad to have you with us, buddy. Thanks for being here. Well, greetings from downtown Marietta. It's a pleasure to be back with everybody. <laughs> Let's get started. Uh, Jim, look, there are a lot of people, Republicans and Democrats, who have owned the war in Afghanistan over the last two decades. It was George W. Bush who put us in that war, believing that, uh, at, at the advice of his vice president, Dick Cheney, that securing Afghanistan so it would no longer be a haven for al-Qaeda and other terrorist organizations who, of course, had plotted and successfully uh, 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 executed the 9-11 uh, terrorist attack on the country. Um, Barack Obama said he was going to pull the troops out. Instead, he added more uh, troops. It was President Trump who negotiated actually a deal with the Taliban so that American troops could be pulled out. But the fact of the matter is, Jim, this is going to belong squarely in Joe Biden's court. Right. Look, this this was this was uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, operation to execute. And and clearly it didn't it 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 went uh, just south very quickly and in a way that in a harsh way that I, I still think is just boggles the mind, but it does tell you that we spent twenty years trying to build an, uh, a security infrastructure in Afghanistan, and and look how fast it collapsed. Uh, it was it it was it was it, this this was just something that was built entirely on sand. Uh, a couple thoughts on this. I would uh, uh, number one. I, I would this this does the, it, it, this kind of goes to the, the the weakness of a of a democratic superpower. Uh, we have we have a limited taste for pushing troops overseas, and and the rest of the world is has begun to understand that the Taliban simply outweighed uh, us. If I were if, if if you know in a in a global perspective. Uh, uh, I'm, if if I'm uh, uh, President Xi Jinping of China, I'm looking at this very, very with a great deal of interest, with my eye on Taiwan. Uh, this it's uh, our 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 military reach. I think is now sub subject to, to to a great deal of question. Let me let me make sure that our listeners realize that when you talked about democratic, you meant democratic with a small d, the exporting d, yes. of our American values <laughs> and our system of government to other countries. Andra, um, let me here's when I, when we say that, unfortunately for him and probably for Democrats as well as much of the country is really watching with alarm at the. The, the frenzied efforts that people who supported our presence in Afghanistan are taking to try to get out of the country. Here's why he owns it. In a, in a meeting with uh, me, uh, reporters in a news conference back on July 8th, he was asked, is a Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? He answered, no, it is not, because Afghan troops have 300,000 well-equipped uh, and uh, as well equipped as any air army in the world, and an air force against something like seventy thousand, five thousand Taliban, it is not inevitable. He said he was asked, "Do you see any parallels between this withdrawal and what happened in Vietnam?" None whatsoever. Zero. The Taliban is not the South. The North Vietnamese Army, they're not. They're not remotely comparable in terms of capability. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of an embassy. And he goes on 
uh, to say the likelihood there's going to be a Taliban overrunning everything and owning the country is highly unlikely. Unfortunately, today he owns those words, Andra. Yeah, I mean, well, he owns the debacle because it happened on his watch. And so that's usually the case that, you know, uh, you know, lots of uh, administrations are implicated in this because of the fact that this has been going on for 20 years. And there are decisions that were made years ago, even last year, that certainly have implications for, you know, and constrain what President Biden was able to do. But uh, good or bad, whenever something kind of comes to fruition or manifests, during a presidential administration, we usually associate it with that particular administration. So he owns that part of it, and he owns the overly sort of sanguine language and predictions that he made just a month ago about how this wasn't going to be a debacle when everybody kind of thought that it was going to be a debacle. We also know that uh, his military advisors were advising against this type of pullout. And I think the thing that's probably, you know, probably most galling about this is not just that we left, right? Because if you want to take him seriously that, you know, Donald Trump tied my hands and so I had to get out even if I didn't want to get out because I had to sort of follow this agreement, there's the process part of this. There's the part that looks like this wasn't planned. Um, And in particular, because there's been a lot of attention on those who provided aid and succor to the Americans over the last 20 years. You know, you could fault the, the Trump administration for not coming up with a contingency plan to get interpreters and other support staff out of there. But that means it's incumbent on the Biden administration to have done that planning. And the fact that there are folks who are still there that we left behind and it doesn't look like there was any real serious plan to get most of them out before the withdrawal was done is something that's going to be viewed as as a pox on the administration. And it's something that they're going to have to take responsibility for. Uh, Buddy and and then Eric, uh, let me just give you some of the uh, numbers. Uh, Sam Bermistaw said them to me a little while ago. Number of American service members killed in Afghanistan since we first went in almost 20, about 20 years ago, uh, 2,448. U.S. contractors, 3,800 lives lost. Afghan national military and police, 66,000. Other allied service members, including other NATO member states, 14. Hundred, perhaps as many as 50,000 Afghan civilians. Uh, the cost, buddy, has been, and that's not even talking about the financial cost, which is staggering, but I would argue you've got to talk about the human cost before you talk about that, buddy. Well, certainly, but let me point one thing out to everybody is there's plenty of blame to go around, and there's no one who is blameless in this situation. I think as a country and as a government, And as Democrats and Republicans, we all have made a big mistake here. When I went to Congress uh, back in 83, the Soviet war was coming to an end, and we were convinced that uh, we had made the world safe for democracy by uh, helping the Mujahideen back then. And uh, so at that time, we thought that uh, Afghanistan would be stable. Then, of course, we we know what happened after that time. I don't think... President Bush had any choice except to go in when he did. The only question in in my mind is uh, who should have gotten us out of there. In my opinion, it probably should have been President Obama and certainly President Trump. But it now uh, rests in President Biden's lap, and uh, he'll just have to do the best way he can to extricate him from it. But again, there's plenty of blame to go around and plenty of footage with everybody saying things that they probably wish they hadn't said. Eric? 
Yeah, look, I, I think Buddy's correct. I mean, there's been a lot um, uh, there's been a lot of finger pointing on both sides, but you, you know, this is under President Biden's watch, and this was a failed in execution. I think we need to figure out how this happened. Uh, I mean, given the president's statements just a month ago, for this to happen as quickly as it happened. And, and Bill, I just want to comment too. You just, you know, ran through a whole list of data, numbers of people that were killed, contractors. You know, what what was not included are all their families and all the yeah. people that are connected to all these individuals. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is impacting a lot of people. And when you, you know, watch the news over the last, you know, 48, 72 hours, listening to some of these veterans and you know, people that served in Afghanistan who work closely with these interpreters and the local people on the ground. I mean, they are hurting right now because these people help them and they're trapped over there right now. We're talking about getting Americans out right now. But what about all those people that are still going to remain in Afghanistan, the Afghanistan and the, and the women and the girls who have just had, you know, over a decade more than that? where they've been liberated, they've been educated. I mean, that was a big priority of Mrs. Bush when President Bush, you know, went into Afghanistan was the liberation of women. And now women, you know, they don't know what's going to happen. So, I mean, this is, we're going to be talking about this for a while right now, but back to the start of my comment, I mean, this is happening under President Biden's watch. He owns it and he's going to have to figure out where we go from here. Jim, uh, you mentioned the fall of Saigon, uh, which happened in the last week of April in 1975. You and I are old enough, so is Buddy Darden. I think uh, Eric and Andrew will have some memories of it. But uh, the reality is uh, that was one of the most <laughs> horrifying moments in, uh, in, in, in Americans, uh, uh, Americans' view of how we dealt with our countries overseas. Um, and we have those those desperate images of people at the roof of the American embassy in Saigon being uh, helicoptered off. And now, as Eric points out, there's this mad scramble, not just for Americans to get out of there, but um, we're also uh, we're being told terrifying stories of Afghans rushing to the airport, international airport, trying to get on airplanes. There are reports that some people were clinging to planes as they took off and fell, uh, perhaps some of them to their deaths. Uh, so I'd love you to comment on that, but the rest of it as well. And by the way, Andre and Eric, I'm just trying to uh, acknowledge the fact that I think you're a bit younger than the rest of us on this panel. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. There are, look, there are quite a few parallels, I think, between Vietnam and 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 this one. Again, uh, uh, hubris is a is 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 a is a major theme running through this. What's interesting is that, of course, in the in the days after after uh, the uh, or, or at the I guess at the height, uh, uh, we had the Pentagon Papers. Uh, Detailing the secret history of the war in Vietnam and 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 how uh, our military leaders didn't think it to be a, a a winnable conflict, even as they were pouring bodies into it, we have the same situation now. Uh, the, the The Washington Post has been running a, a a a a the results of an Inspector General report on the on on the history of the Afghan war, and it is just likewise uh, filled with with military people saying that uh, this thing was. Uh, that that the just the, the the corruption, the illiteracy, all the factors that that go into in, into into creating a an army and a police uh, uh, security system, they just weren't there. Uh, 
One thing I would uh, – one of the more interesting things I, I heard on Sunday uh, on the Sunday news shows was Lynn Cheney, uh, whose father, of course, was a, had, had a big role in, in – as we've mentioned in, 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 uh, in the U.S. incursion into, into Afghanistan. Uh, but she, 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 she was ladle, ladling out uh, uh, responsibility, and she singled out uh, Mike Pompeo. And I, I, we haven't heard uh, about the impact of this, but I'm I am I'm really interested in seeing what for the four years of hollowing out the State Department and the disabusing of of of, uh, uh, of U.S. intelligence agencies by the previous administration, what impact that might have had on 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 the uh, the, the, the 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 nation's ability to complete this kind of operation. And and you know it's. Good that you mentioned that because, look, all of these things are going to be chewed over for months to come, um, and, and we know that. Um, I'd like to turn the conversation to Georgia and to the 2022 election cycle and how this may play into it. Now, Andra, we never know what kind of life a story, even a story as big as this one, is going to have moving forward. But as of today, as of this morning— uh, Republicans who are running for office in Georgia are taking full advantage of uh, the crisis in Afghanistan to use in their uh, political campaigns. John King, who's the interim insurance uh, commissioner and is running for that office now for, uh, in 2022, said, I'm watching the CH-47 helicopter flying to pick up the ambassador and flag. I mean, this is Saigon. We were there for 20 years. There, that was an incredible investment of blood and treasure, and nobody agreed there to stay. We'd stay there forever, but it was the way we left. We just pulled the carpet out from under their feet. Is this how we are defining coalition building? Why would anybody ever trust us again when we do this? And I'll, I'll, as we go on, I'll read you some other comments from both Republicans and Democrats. But, Andra, what is, and I'd love everybody to weigh in on this, what kind of longevity does something like this likely have? And and there's no way of knowing, but speculate for us. So I, I'm not sure that it does. I mean, I think there's a lot of finger pointing going around and looking at the fact that there are two Democratic and two Republican administrations implicated in this. Um, and also, like, people are forgetting, right? President Trump abruptly was like, we're getting out last year. And people thought that was crazy, even Republicans. And so, yeah, while, like, this is Joe Biden's mess. Like, let us not forget sort of what the long history of this is and even the not so long history um, of, of, of what's going on there. Um, it was interesting. Liz Cheney, you know, was on ABC yesterday kind of, you know, issuing her critique while Mike Pompeo was on Fox kind of defending it and saying that this would have gone differently and that they were in a better bargaining position from having bargained with the Taliban beforehand. Um, and I'm sure that a lot of people who are much smarter than I am on these issues would probably beg to differ on that. Um, I, I think in terms of politics, right, like, you know, this is sort of the knee-jerk sort of Twitter reaction, but ultimately for a lot of Georgia races, what is going to matter are local and domestic issues broadly, depending on what type of office it is that you're running for. Um, and so, yeah, I don't think somebody running for insurance commissioner gets a whole lot of traction um, other than getting mentioned today, you know, on, on political rewind for, you know, his stance on Afghanistan because it, it doesn't matter a whole lot. Now, here is where I think all bets are off. If this happens and we become the victim of a terrorist attack, right, then I think it does actually sort of become a relevant issue and a salient issue. I think, you know, that aside um, or some other exogenous kind of foreign affairs shock, 
2022 is likely still going to be about domestic issues, and it's still going to be really heavily focused on what's happening in the U.S. So, yeah, while there is a short-term price to pay politically in terms of President Biden's approval rating, um, in terms of specific approval ratings about how he's handled this and attitudes towards Afghanistan, I, I do expect that in the long run, 2022 is going to be about what we thought 2022 was going to be about when we entered 2021. I, I I agree that, you know, in, in in our politics today, you know, what's a story today may not be a story tomorrow. I don't think that's the case here. And, and Bill, you mentioned John King, and I'm glad, you know, you brought him up first. He served in Afghanistan. Mm. So he's not just someone who's taking political advantage of a situation. He's someone, and if you look, listen to the news today and you hear all of these veterans and people that have served, this is really... Uh, heartbreaking to them. I mean, these people know what it's like on the ground there, and those stories are not going to go away overnight. We're going to be hearing about these. Buddy? Well, let me agree with Eric and everyone. This is a terrible situation in which we find ourselves. But at the same time, I don't think there's any question that all of us know or knew that this day would come, and it was absolutely inevitable that one day that the United States would come out of Afghanistan and that the Taliban and their type of leadership would come back. Uh, I think we should have learned a long time ago we can't impose our values. We can't buy our values and uh, expect other people to uh, turn away uh, 5,000 years of history and just because we are perceived to be the saviors in, in the client. So what, I, what I'm suggesting to you is that this will be uh, a bad thing uh, for the Democrats and, and for a short while. But like all other stories, uh, there's nothing uh, more more uh, stale than yesterday's news. Everybody's forgotten about, uh, about uh, Andrew Cuomo now, and uh, there will be something else next time down the road. So while it's important, and Eric says, yes, it is a very important thing, you've got to remember. You've got to remember that uh, there's enough blame to go around We'll be, we'll be talking about it a while, but in the end, uh, I don't think there will be any clear blame because, frankly speaking, this would have happened at some point, no matter what. You know, there's one thing I will add to that kind of in response to Eric's comment. Um, well, I think the place where, where the Democrats and President Biden in particular are most vulnerable is that they tried to build a brand of competence in contrast to the previous administration. Um, and just sort of the procedural sort of screw-up that happens here in Afghanistan really kind of undermines that idea of if you give it the steady hand, we kind of know what we're doing and we'll execute in, in, in a somewhat flawless fashion. And I think if, if, if this has staying power, it is there. Um, it, it is in that particular vein in terms of talking about sort of how confident can we be that this administration will execute things. Um, I still think that, that, that 2022 and 2024 will largely be decided on domestic issues barring a terrorist attack. But, you know, that's the one thing that President Biden has to deal with. And it's going to be really interesting to see how he addresses this and how he takes responsibility for it when he makes his, 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 his national address. If he acts like Andrew Cuomo did last week, then, like, this is terrible. Uh, but if he takes responsibility and actually seeks to learn from it and, and, and is willing to take his lumps, we'll see whether or not it's salvageable. Yeah, and, and uh, you know, we also have a number, there are a number of candidates running for office right now in Georgia. 
that have military backgrounds, some have actually served over in Afghanistan. And I'm just thinking about in the U.S. Senate race uh, against Raphael Warnock. I mean, candidates like Latham Sadler and Kelvin King, uh, there's some congressional candidates that are running against incumbents that uh, have served as well. I think we're going to hear from them, too. Um, Jim, we're going to take a break in a moment, but I, I, well, let me add one last note to this. Uh, we, you know, I think Andre Gillespie certainly makes a good point that whether the insurance commissioner race will be decided on the basis of how Joe Biden handled the withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan is unlikely. But, uh, but in congressional races, in off-year election races, if you add this and what apparently, at least this moment, before there's a fuller autopsy, seems to be a failure by the Biden administration to prepare for this exit or to understand the Taliban's ability to move as swiftly as they did, add that to the immigration crisis at the border, the fact we're seeing record numbers of people cross the border. Uh, Andres went, talked about the brand, um, and, and the Joe Biden brand um, is going to have a lot to do with, I think, congressional campaigns in an off year. Uh, so, so it will be interesting to see how it becomes part of a larger narrative Republicans try to put together, Jim. Right. And, and, and quite frankly, I think a lot of it is going to, p- to depend on, on where Donald Trump comes, comes in on this thing, whether, whether, whether he, is, he, he uh, reaffirms his decision back in, back in 2020 to, to pull out of Afghanistan or he becomes a, a, a convert to uh, the, 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 the voices that say, no, we shouldn't have left or at least not have left in that fashion. One of the more interesting things I found this morning was, was, uh, was from Gary Black, uh, the U.S. Senate candidate, the Republican U.S. Senate candidate former state agriculture commissioner he uh, you know he he uh, uh, his 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 instinct was 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 simply to uh, to shift the conversation what's happen what, what happens in Afghanistan means we need to pay more uh, more attention to Trump's ideas on on sealing the southern border uh, which is a little yeah. bit of a it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting uh, 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 connection there but I, I think it, it shows you uh, how how kind of at sea when when Republicans might be when it comes to 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 a to a, a straight line foreign policy issue. But in fairness, before I take the break, you're the Democrat on the panel. I ought to give you a chance to respond to the suggestion that uh, the off-year elections could be uh, certainly influenced by whether people believe that President Biden is handling major crises uh, appropriately. Well, generally speaking, uh, the first two years, that is, the election immediately following the election of a president, is uh, never good for uh, the president's party. And in fact, if you look at what has generally happened historically over the years, there's only been one or two times in which the House especially has not lost, has not lost uh, seats in the um, pre- party of the president. So we'll just see. But again, all the rules have been thrown out uh, lately. And so We'll just have to sit back and say, but historically, historically, the Democrats generally are an advantage uh, in the next uh, disadvantage, excuse me, in the time coming up. All right. Um, We got to get to our first break of the show. We'll be back in a moment and turn our attention to uh, state uh, politics. This is Political Rewind. (laughs) 
Professor Andre Gillespie, Buddy Darden, Eric Tannenblatt, Jim Galloway join us for today's uh, Political Rewind. Let's uh, move on to uh, state news. Uh, I want to go to COVID first, uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit in a while about the uh, kind of also staggering numbers about Georgia in the uh, U.S. Senate data, which came out last week. Uh, but, Jim, let's start with COVID. A very close friend of mine last week called me uh, toward, toward the end of the week and said, I feel like we're all suffering in a kind of a malaise. We are so, uh, we're back to where we're worried about the virus, whether we're vaccinated or not, whether we can go safely uh, to see friends at restaurants, whether businesses can open. And, uh, and, and certainly I, I sort of thought, I thought that he, he made an awfully good point. I know it's affected me a little bit personally, but just, you know, forget about personal feelings. In the last two weeks, Georgia has seen 50,000 new cases of COVID, uh, 469 per 100,000 people. That is a staggering number. The public health officials are now saying that it's likely that across the country, we're going to get back up to the point of seeing 200,000 cases uh, reported every single day. And Jim, this becomes a political issue because uh, as we watch the governor running for re-election, people are being very closely focused on how he handles this uh, latest surge. Jim? Uh, yeah, and we've already had uh, several smaller school systems in Georgia either delay delay the opening of classes or return to uh, to virtual learning uh, because because of the presence of the virus in their communities. Uh, it's it is uh, it is deja vu all over again in a, in a very big sense, except that for for most school systems most school systems have uh, have uh, determined they're going to press on without uh, with 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 only a minimal uh, amount of students uh, going into into to online classes uh, it's it's uh, and so you have these 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 debates over masks and vaccination vaccinations that are getting only more and more intense uh I will tell you, uh, 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 like Buddy, I live out here in Cobb County. I'm I'm, I'm out here in West Cobb, and uh, we have a we have a a, a Cobb County school board member uh, representing East Cobb, David Banks, who has been sending out uh, 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 misinformation to to parents uh, uh, to parents who are complaining about uh, the Cobb County's lack of a a, a mask mandate, uh, basically. Uh, disabusing them, he says masks are not effective. He says vaccines are not effective. Uh, it's uh, this is a longtime uh, Cobb County school school board member, and and I just uh, find that kind of nonsense uh, uh, really disturbing. So, um, uh, Eric, it, uh, you, the governor's getting squeezed on both sides of this. Of course, on one hand, it's not surprising. Democrats are saying you've got to take stronger action. Uh, the governor does encourage people to get vaccinated. He talks all the time about the fact that he was vaccinated. He feels better, safer because of that. But there are Democrats who feel he is not taking using the bully pulpit in the way he needs to perhaps to uh, suggest a mask mandate uh, at the very least. On the other side of the aisle, Eric, you've got uh, Brandon Beach, Senator Brandon Beach, who wants to introduce legislation that would ban private businesses from demanding that their employees be vaccinated 
And you've got Burt Jones running for lieutenant governor now who wants a special session called to let, so the legislature can ban mask mandates in schools. Uh, the governor's in the middle of all that, Eric. Yeah, and it's unfortunate because you're dealing with a public health uh, crisis. And, you know, it, it's times like this that you need to take the politics out of it. But unfortunately, uh, politics plays into everything that happens. And on both sides of the aisle, you're seeing, you know, people that are, you know, being critics. Uh, you know, when the Democrats start, you know, invoking the Medicaid expansion debate as it relates to covid and then you have, uh, you know, Republicans running in a primary trying to outright flank the other or out trump the other uh, candidates to win the primary. It, it's it's unfortunate. And I think the governor is doing what he needs to do. He's trying to uh, govern in a balanced way. Uh, you know, look, we are a very diverse state geographically, too. And, and some of the things you see in one part of the state don't necessarily apply to the other part of the state. Um, I think he's taken a balanced approach uh, to steal his phrase. He's protecting lives and livelihoods. And I, I have a, a lot of uh, confidence in what he's doing. I just think that we just got to try and, um, you know, manage the white noise on both sides of the aisle. And there's a, there's a lot of that. You know, the thing that concerns me about this is, you know, he's not Greg Abbott or he's not Ron DeSantis um, or Doug Ducey, um, you know, in, you know, threatening folks who defy him. But the fact that there is technically a ban on mandates in place is something that, you know, is problematic. And so I think what would actually be refreshing for, for Governor Kemp is to admit that that was actually heavy-handed and not just sort of wink and nod and say, I'm not going to do anything if you, if you actually put those in, but to sort of come out and say all the things that you've heard about how you lose oxygen if you wear a mask uh, that you can completely breathe through. So, and if people have problems with polyester masks, I'm all about cotton masks, right, because you can still breathe through them. Um, if you're not going to double mask or wear a KN95. But, like, you know, like that's, I think, the part that's actually really, really frustrating about sort of, you know, what we see happening and that we don't see Governor Kemp out in public, even though I don't think he's necessarily like, you know, like I said, he's not sort of the worst example here, but we don't see him out in front in the way that he was a year ago. Um, and I think that that's what a lot of people are looking for, is, is, is looking for him to kind of take a much more public face and a less behind-the-scenes role and sometimes a less passive role in terms of saying, look, the situations have changed, and it's really important that we get this right. And in particular, that we get it right for our young people, because children under 12 can't possibly be vaccinated. So there's no reason they should be masked at all times, wherever they are. You know, this isn't, you know, sort of, you know, the, the recalcitrant 50-year-old, or it isn't the person who is, is, is vaccinated. We're talking about people who couldn't have possibly been vaccinated and who are 100% exposed to the virus at this point. Uh, buddy, and then Jim, but Buddy, before you weigh in, let me, let me very quickly um, uh, let people know, the governor is going to hold an event at 4 o'clock this afternoon. We don't know what he's going to say. Um, it'll be interesting to see how strongly he speaks out about the need for Georgians to take action to protect themselves through vaccines and masks. Uh, he's lost, Buddy, his emergency powers to mandate things statewide, but the point is he is speaking out finally today. Buddy and then Jim. Well, I'm glad that he is. I am the grandfather of twin second graders in the Marietta, Marietta City school system, 
and of course they're too young to be vaccinated. So naturally, I have a very strong interest in this for a number of reasons. But the thing I think the governor should do is, and he's and he was outed recently for not using Dr. Toomey more. I think he needs to surround himself with validators. I think he needs to try to not go this alone, and and this is not should not be a uh, single decision by him. He needs to take advantage of a lot of smart people who are available to him uh, out at Emory University. I mentioned Dr. Toomey. She's well regarded by uh, both sides of, of the aisle and not try to go this thing alone and and use validators and use science and he can still achieve his political ends, but at the same time, he needs to use the benefit of the resources in front of him. I personally don't think he's been doing that very well. Uh, yeah, uh, Bill, while, we, while we've been talking of uh, uh, Todd, Todd Ream, one of our friends, the show's <laughs> friends, uh, uh, sent out a note saying he's counted 11 full counties, uh, 11 counties in Georgia that have had full shutdowns of their school systems and maybe three others that have uh, that have shut down portions or or, or individual schools in their systems. So it is it is actually a little bit more widespread than 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 we were speaking of. And look, you know, it's it's. I'll be interested in hearing what the governor says uh, uh, this afternoon. Uh, the last full on statement I think we got from him was was something like, "You can lead uh, lead a horse to water, but you cannot make him drink." And yeah, you know, there, 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 there's a certain amount of logic to that, except that that Georgians are that if if you consider Georgians to be horses, then the water uh, available to them is at at at, at uh, exceedingly different distances. You know, I mean, if we are we're dealing with a health system in which uh, look, there was a 2019. Uh, a little factoid that's applied nationwide says 25% of Americans don't adult Americans don't have access to a physician. The same physicians that 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 the governor is counseling us to 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 obey to to consult and 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 obey. Uh, I would cons- I would think that 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 twenty five percent figure is much higher in Georgia, where we have where we basically have no healthcare infrastructure uh, below the below the net line. All right, we're going to wait to see what uh, the governor has to say today. Where does he come down in this uh, squeeze between the conservative Republicans who want him to make sure there are no mandates in place for anything? And uh, those on the other side who are saying, please, Governor, step up the pressure you're putting on people to protect each other and themselves. We're going to take our final break of the show, and we'll be back with more in a moment. We've known for quite a long time that the state of Georgia was trending toward becoming a majority-minority state. But the 2020 census figures uh, showed us just how accelerated the pace of that transformation has been. Um, the Atlanta MSA, Metropolitan Statistical Area, which is 29 counties, including, of course, the city, was nearly 51 percent white in 2010. Ten years later, in the 2020 census, it's less than 44 percent white. And um, we know that the rest of the state 
is a changing and will soon be a majority-minority state as well. Andre Gillespie, this is one of the things that you look at. You are a data cruncher in, in terms of elections. Um, just give us your broadest view of what these census figures say about the future of politics, just in the immediate future. Well, I mean, this isn't absolute. Um, and so I think it's really important that, I, you know, I stated at the beginning that demography is destiny, despite the fact that it might sound like I'm about to say that demography is destiny. <laughs> but if we carry this back to the previous decade, what we saw was a growth in the non-white voting population that was occurring because of these population shifts that have been going on. So first, it started with African-Americans moving back to the state in the beginning of the 21st century. And then we've seen this nearly doubling um, of, of Asian-American and Hispanic voters in the state in the last decade. And so what the, the, the census numbers are telling us is that what we saw happening in the voter file, you know, is real and that it suggests that this is only going to continue going forward. And so if you see this non-white population growing and a white population shrinking and we see racial polarization in, 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 in partisan voting, um, then that puts Democrats in a strong position to be able to contend for um, office. Um, it suggests that there's potential, right? So there's still um, ways that we could look at voter registration numbers compared to what we see in the census numbers and realize that uh, that minority voters aren't voting at their full capacity. And so that's the Stacey Abrams strategy, is to try to get as many of those folks registered to vote as possible so that their vote, so that their political power is, 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 is reflected in that. But I think the caution for Democrats is, is that you can't assume that just because blacks vote 90% Democratic, because Asian Americans and Latinos are voting at 60 to 70% Democratic, that that's always going to be the case. It could change. Um, it doesn't seem like it would likely change, uh, you know, right now in the immediate future, but there's always that dynamism that we always have to, to, to put into place. But what this suggests is that what you saw happen in 2020 with uh, minority voter outreach, with uh, minority turnout breaking for Democratic votes and with, Dem and with Democrats actually being able to win um, statewide office in three contests, is that that wasn't a fluke and that that pretends a certain level of competitiveness for the next decade or so. Um, buddy, just to add one, a couple more figures, the uh, proportion of white Georgians across the state in, uh, in 2010 was 60% white. It is now just a little bit more than 50% white. Uh, black Georgians have increased by 13%, uh, the Hispanic community by 32%, the Asian American population by 53%, although I'd suggest that because it was a relatively small pool of people to begin with at 53% in terms of raw numbers isn't perhaps as significant as the other figures. Buddy, uh, despite all that, Republicans still control the levers of power. They'll redistrict the state, they'll dominate that process, and they can pass election laws that uh, favor uh, their voters. Betty? Well, they don't need any advice from me on what to do. However, if I were them in this redistricting, I would uh, concede at least one seat to the Democrats, especially since Jody Heiss is not coming back and try to uh, minimize the losses rather than trying to maximize every possible seat they can. Of course, that's, that's their decision. Also, I think they need to throw off the yoke of Trump uh, when, whenever ever possible, because what happens, what happens when you get census numbers and they're trending a, cer a certain way, the um, 
actuality and the numbers actually trail what the uh, projections are. So it's going to be even more so by 2022 than it is at the time the census was taken. So I think we've got to figure some way to uh, try to accommodate everybody, everybody here, and realize that Georgia's a legitimate two, two-party system, and I think the uh, intransigence, uh, which has been shown by the state legislature and, and the governor, uh, is a mistake for the party because I think it's time to broaden their base. And, uh, and Governor Kemp seems to be running a base election and I'm not sure how much longer that, that can continue. But, again, uh, I think it's a healthy trend for the, for the state, and I'm glad to see that uh, the numbers are beginning to um, lead us toward a, a true two-party state. Jim? Well, it, you know, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, for one thing that I'm, I'm – kind of concerned with about this. I mean, the, 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 the demographic, the demographic trend is no surprise. It's always been there. It, and, 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 and to, to one degree, I'll, I'll agree with Andra that, you know, demographics is destiny. What I am worried about is in the very short term, in the next two, three, four election cycles, that that you have a, 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 a greater focus on the declining power of 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 uh, white voters in Georgia, and that has that has a that has a tendency to 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 it. it a, a, a declining majority under attack uh, is going is going to is going to have more cohesion. It's going to unite around its 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 victimhood, and I'm af- what I'm afraid of is that you might have uh, Republicans in the next two, three, four election cycles concentrating on that on on that uh, quote victimhood. Eric. Yeah, look, you know, I, I think there's a short game and a long game, and uh, you know the demographics have been changing over the last, you know, several decades. And, you know, I've, I've been a voice that have been talking about how the Republican Party needs to broaden its base in the, in the state if it wants to remain in the majority status for years to come. And the Republicans are going to have to, you know, make that choice. Are they just going to look to hold on to power? You know, I, I still remember, as I'm sure you all do as well, in 2000 when the Democrats were in control and when Governor Barnes was governor. I mean, the Democrats tried to do everything they could to hold on to power from creating these crazy districts, breaking up communities of interest, multi-member districts, and it ultimately backfired. And so the question is, are the Republicans going to play the long game and look at how they could continue to make, you know, take advantage of the fact that they're in the majority but do it in a way that they're looking at how they can continue to hold the majority by reaching and expanding their base, which is what I hope they do. Andra, um, we, uh, at, during the hearings that uh, the reapportionment committee has been holding around the state, uh, a fair process is one of the first things that people said they want to see. But one of the other interesting things that relates to what Eric is talking about is uh, that people in smaller uh, communities saying, please don't break us up along district lines. We have little enough power as it is. And if you divide us uh, for your own partisan gain, we lose so much ability to uh, get the attention of people in the legislature. Andra? 
Well, I mean, so, you know, the challenge with that is that the Supreme Court doesn't care about partisan gerrymandering, and they've made that very, very clear um, in the last few, year, few years in multiple uh, Supreme Court cases. And so I think that it's going to be uh, difficult for uh, legislators who have the power of the pen to somewhat resist that urge. But the problem is the long-term problem about whether or not that backfires. You know, one of the interesting things that kind of comes out of the census is that, is that you know, we've often talked about sort of the urban versus the rural divide in the state. And so it's happened in Georgia, but it's also true nationally. You know, what we see is that sort of cities in the surrounding areas are kind of gaining the upper hand here as well. And so it's going to make it difficult uh, for uh, districts to be drawn um, in such a way for, uh, for rural areas to not lose power just because they don't have the population to sustain it. And as we have seen Metro Atlanta broadly defined become more racially and ethnically diverse, one of the other things that's also going to be really difficult to try to put together is to try to put together districts where uh, the power and influence of those voters can be mitigated. Uh, so that's, you know, that, you know, that's the challenge going forward. And we've already seen that happen in terms of what we've seen, the transformation we've seen happen in Metro state legislative districts in the last few cycles. Uh, Andra, while you got the ball in your court, I want to circle back to uh, the very first conversation we had in the show, which was about the collapse of the Afghanistan government and President Biden's uh, 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 being kind of held accountable for it right now. You uh, pointed out to the panel a few minutes ago that you noticed that 25th Amendment is trending on Twitter uh, with conservatives suggesting it is time to call for the impeachment of President Biden over his failure, his alleged failure in Afghanistan. Um, we, this kind of paralysis, Andra, is it, it, we're, it's not getting anybody anywhere. It's kind of frightening to think about. Well, this is hyper-partisanship run amok. The 25th Amendment doesn't apply here. Nobody is saying that President Biden is incompetent and can't hold office. And so the fact that you're taking that pot shot really just shows how corrosive our politics have become. Um, it's a shame that it's gone there. All right. Uh, but it does, Jim, you know, lead us again to say that these issues are, as Andra points out, it is hyperpartisanship and a Republican move, if it were to come in Congress, even to begin the process of an impeachment. That's what I mean about potential paralysis. There are other issues to deal with, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, Jim. Right. And what we have to remember is that Twitter is not America and that uh, that <laughs> that uh, uh, that. Uh, a, a thirty second analysis isn't uh, is isn't always great the best. <laughs> Jim Galloway, that's the most optimistic statement I've heard on the show today. Thank goodness Twitter is not America. Jim Galloway, Eric Tannenblatt, Andre Gillespie, and Buddy Darden, thank you for a really interesting conversation today. We're completely out of time for political rewind, but we're back again tomorrow. Until then, please take care, stay healthy. I, I hope you'll wear a mask to protect yourself and others from this Delta variant when you're in situations around uh, people indoors particularly. And encourage the neighbors of yours who haven't been vaccinated that it's good for them as well as for you. See you all tomorrow. <laughs>